Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, available at all your finest retailers. Go pay them some money for a book, please. That's right. Christmas is coming. Buy yourself about eight copies as a present. Yep. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. On today's episode, we'll head to the pub where, well, actually, kind of surprisingly, this is going to be a quick episode this week. We don't have an interview, but we are going to talk about some of the beers that we've been making. And, of course, every time we turn around, there's more beer news to cover, so we'll cover some of that, along with some of the things that we've been reading and watching. We'll get you a quick tip, we'll get you something other than beer, and then we'll get you on your merry way. And we get to hear Drew talking about one of the beers that I sent him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he was actually very kind. But before we get into doing any of that fun stuff... Let's do something else that's fun and listen to these messages from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, publishers of Zymergy Magazine, organizers of HomebrewCon, and enjoyers of homebrew. Join your friends in fermentation at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Welcome back, everybody, and uh, we're going to start off here with a few announcements. Drew, go for it, buddy. All right, and our one announcement this week is if you go and check your podcast feed or go check the website, whatever it is you do to put these merry sounds into your merry little ears, you'll see that last week we had an episode of The Brew Files that was all about me talking about my thoughts on how to make a good hoppy saison. And you guys know I love my saisons and I love my hops, so I have some thoughts. And go give it a listen. 26 minutes. You can do it. It's easy. You can do it. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers Friends, or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's Project Freedom Ride. They are a great organization that works with dog rescue organizations in both Texas and Georgia to truck dogs up here to the Pacific Northwest where they can... Find their forever people and live happily ever after. Um, my dog, Britton, got up here that way. She's a wonderful pup. And, uh, you know, help people get good dogs. Throw us a couple bucks. Go to experimentalbrew.com and click on the Patreon link. Give us whatever you can afford, and we will pass it on to them. Go help the dogs. That's right, man. Just a, a little note, our previous charity was uh, World Central Kitchen, uh, run by Chef Jose Andres to help uh, feed people in disaster areas. And due to you guys, we have just been able to donate $4,360 to World Central Kitchen. Uh, our biggest donation to date, 
Thank you all so much for helping out people and uh, keep it up. Let's help out dogs now. There you go. Feed the people, rescue the dogs. That's what we do. That's right. All right. Enough of that. Time for a beer. It is. Boy, I love it when we get to the beer quick. We're going to head over to the Experimental Brewing Pub, and when we come back, we'll be talking about the beer life. So please stick around. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Does your fermenter need to have Wi-Fi? Not necessarily, but is a Wi-Fi-enabled fermenter incredibly useful? You bet. Using the Grainfather app, brewers can monitor and adjust fermentation from anywhere in the world, a feature that could come in handy if you want to start a diacetyl rest while sipping an umbrella drink on the beach. The new and improved Grainfather Conical Fermenter Pro is constructed from 304 stainless steel and has a total work capacity of 8 gallons, making it just the right size for your 5-gallon batches with plenty of headspace. A 1.5-inch tri-clamp on the lid allows up to 2 PSI of top pressure for work transfers, and the 2-inch tri-clamp port on the bottom of the cone makes true dumps a snap. Particularly nifty is the dual function valve that lets you transfer and sample beer or pull yeast using the same valve. The integrated 12-volt, 30-watt heating element makes it easy to gently warm your fermenter, while a built-in cooling sleeve only needs to be connected to an optional chiller to get the temperature down. The new and improved Grainfather Conical Fermenter Pro is available now at grainfather.com or at a homebrew shop near you. Welcome back. We're here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of Everywhere and Nowhere in cyberspace, and we're having a couple beers. And as usual, Drew gets to go first, telling us about what he's drinking. Right. So what I'm drinking this week is a Firestone Walker 805 Cerveza. Uh, now, you guys may know that Firestone Walker has the 805 Blonde. It's become the company's biggest selling beer, right? You know, easy drinking, American-style blonde ale, just, you know, a thirst quencher. And I got to talking with Sam Tierney, who is the head brewer at Firestone Walker's uh, Research and Development Brewery, which is located actually in Venice, California, right? Which, if you know your California geography, means that the research brewery and the main brewery are located about six hours apart by driving. So, uh, but wow, the, yeah, they, they they run a little place called the Propagator in Venice Beach, 
And 805 Cerveza actually started as a project beer in Venice. And what it is, it's, it's their Mexican-style lager with a hint of lime added to it. And so talking with them, you get a lot of uh, limey-type uh, limey beers that people have added lime and have crossed the craft brewing world to. And they're always super, super strong on the lime. This one, it's actually really nice and subtle. You know there's lime in there, but it's not... It's not in your face, and it doesn't become a lime beer. So it's just kind of like that nice little squeeze of lime in a beer. And otherwise, it's an all-malt beer. You know, I believe, if I remember correctly, a combination of Pilsner, uh, Pale Ale malt, and a little bit of Munich. So kind of going a little bit darker, no corn in it. And, man, it was just a good drinking beer. And as we are in the last gas of summer heat here in Southern California, because we have false fall, uh, we are back up into the 80s and 90s. As we're getting that last little gasp of heat, it's a good drinking beer to have and just kind of take some of that heat pain away. Man, it, it sounds tasty and refreshing. It is, and that's that's one of the things I love. And, and the the other goofy thing about it is it comes in those tall boy cans, you know, those 24s. And so, yeah, that's a good lawnmower beer or just a sitting cool. in the backyard beer. <laughs> and not mowing the lawn. Yeah, exactly. I don't have much of Watching Amy mow the lawn. Yeah, no, I don't have much of a lawn. This is Southern California, <laughs> after all. Um, That's right. All right, and for you, sir, what are you having? Well, it will come as no surprise to anyone who knows me that I'm having an IPA. <laughs> this one is uh, Wanderlust IPA from our good friends at Breakside Brewing up in Portland. Uh, this is... Uh, Number one, I got to tell you that they have some of the best can art I have ever seen. This, the Wanderlust is a picture of a wolf. It's great. We've talked about their rainbows and unicorns before, which has a stunning uh, picture on the can. But let's talk about the beer. The, the Wanderlust is called a golden IPA because the grist on it is just Munich and pale malt, which gives it kind of that, uh, you know, bronze, copper, golden haze to it. The hops are like right up my alley. Amarillo, Cascade, Mosaic, Simcoe, and Summit. It's 64 IBUs. It's 6.2 ABV. This is a totally, totally delicious beer if you like a, a nice straightforward West Coast IPA. Uh, in spite of the fact that it's all Munich and two-row, it doesn't come across as heavy or thick. It's a nice, crisp beer. It's won tons of awards, as it should. Uh, but I'm really enjoying this. Uh, fortunately, uh, it's available easily where we go and uh, order our groceries from. So uh, it's, it's a real staple around the house. And if you have a chance to try anything from Breakside, do it. But especially if you're an IPA fan, check out the Wanderlust. I was going to say, you've been on a real uh, real northern Oregon kick recently. Well, you know what, man? I, I'm not going out a lot still these days, so it kind of has to... Uh, the, the beer that I get is, is what is easily available to me, and fortunately, where we live, there's a lot of really good beer available. Yep, that's kind of a nice thing. All right. Yeah, it is. So let's go ahead and then, speaking about beer that, well, isn't necessarily hard to get, but is good and widely available. We'll break into some news. Uh, Sierra Nevada, for people who aren't paying attention to a lot of press release type stuff like we do, this is the time of year when the bigger breweries start releasing their plans for next year, right? Start the hype train, tell people what you're doing, get people excited. Um, and so Sierra Nevada actually just put out a whole set of information about what they're going through and the, the transformations that they're making. 
So from Jeff White, their CEO, he said uh, the beer industry, real beer, beer flavored beer, not including F&Bs. Those are the malt beverages, right? Uh, and seltzers and things like that is in a steady and significant decline. But that doesn't mean the days of beers are over. Far from it. And so it's very interesting analysis. I mean, you've got to think Sierra Nevada. I mean, come on. They're they're beer stalwarts, right? And here's their CEO saying, eh, yeah, well, we've got problems. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. It turns out, uh, turns out beer is not as popular as it used to be with some people. Um, and so to that extent, they actually gave uh, gave a good number of highlights on what their operating plan for next year is going to be. The first one, which is very much in line with his quote, is that they are launching a brand new hard tea brand. And they're calling it Tea West. And the whole idea of it is 5%, zero carbs, three to four flavors, right? So they're going into that sort of F&B seltzer area just to you know kind of keep generating the revenue in that area and serving and satisfying the customers. But you'll notice, not under the Sierra Nevada brand, right? It's a whole other brand now. Oh, that's interesting. Yep. So <clears throat> this is how some of the marketing stuff works. The other thing that, that I also thought was interesting was – Sierra Nevada, of course, has their hazy little thing, right? Which has become this whole little thing line. And hazy little thing is the nation's number one selling hazy IPA. Um, and, you know, number two is actually from Firestone Walker, uh, Mind Haze. But the whole little thing is now becoming a brand to the point where actually their big little thing, which I actually really like, it's like a 9% IPA, double IPA-ish thing is the number one IPA selling in, in America. Oh, you're kidding. Wow. Yeah. Big little thing. My grocery store carries it, and they sell it in, again, those tall boy cans, 24 ounces. And I'll tell you what, 24 ounces of a 9% beer is a good way to, start, <laughs> it's a good way to end an evening. <laughs> Nap time. Yeah, yeah, really. And so to the extent that little thing is now becoming its own brand line, they've announced that they are launching a sunny little thing, which is actually going to be a 5% ABV wheat ale. And I thought it was interesting reading that because they're like, oh, yeah, you know, we have a lot of people who like that little thing line. They like those sort of consistent flavors between everything. But we didn't have one that was super, super approachable in there. And so that's why they're putting Sunny Little Thing in there. I'd be interested to try that and see if it carries a, a still a sort of hot forward presence to it like I expect in those little thing beers. And then also they just to kind of keep things moving, they are now also launching probably the smallest brewery they've had in 30 years. Um, in two places, they're launching an innovation uh, brewery, 3.5 barrels, both in Chico and in Mills River over in North Carolina. So both the East and West Coast will now have innovation breweries attached to them, which I think is kind of cool, right? You know, give, yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. Well, and for people who have been around the, the beer thing for a while, may remember, I mean, so Sierra Nevada out in bottles, you know, it was always like, hey, you know, you got your pale ale, you got the, the, the stout and the porter. God, I remember when they released those. Um, they had a core lineup of beers that they released, but then the rumor was always like, no, no, you got to go to Chico, man. If you go to Chico, they've got all this different beer on tap. And it's true. They would have like 26 different beers on tap. They had a, wonderful, yeah. they had like a wonderful Rauk beer. Oh my God. That beer is fantastic. Gone. So one of the things I think is kind of nice is as Sierra Nevada has grown, you know, obviously it gets harder to do that when you've got a massive brewing system. So I think some of the nice things will be for the people who are in the Chico and Mills River area is I would expect to see some more 
taproom oriented type releases that are kind of these small little things that they can actually play and pivot with. Man, that is really, that's a cool idea actually. Yeah. So like Denny, when you did beer camp, how, how big of a batch was that? Uh, we brewed on their pilot system, which is 10 barrels and we brewed twice. So we ended up brewing 20 barrels of the beer that we made. Right. And so 10 barrels for a tap room. I mean, it's possible it's doable, but you know, three and a half barrels is going to give you a lot more pivot room. So yeah, really, really. I mean, you know, it, it's amazing. Uh, three and a half barrels. I mean, that's like a super big homebrew system. Yeah. I mean, it's an anobrewery. So, yeah, uh, very, very interesting to see that. The other thing is they've also released what they are considering, like their their message for their core lineup hops, not hype. Right. <laughs> Which I like. And it turns out like Sierra Nevada Pale Ale is still 50 percent of the company's sales. Uh, As it should be, man. That That is an amazing beer still after all these years. Yep. Uh, they're changing Torpedo, the branding at least on it, to focus more on those those magical three letters, IPA, because that's what the consumer is looking for now, as opposed to, <laughs> I think, what Torpedo has always been uh, billed as a extra IPA. Um, and so just now IPA, along with also announcing a brand new Torpedo offshoot, because, again, they're building a Torpedo brand line as well. And this one's going to be Atomic Torpedo. At 8.2% alpha, or 8.2% ABV, uh, and yeah. kind of like an East meets West IPA with Magnum, Mosaic, Cascade, and Centennial. I'll be curious to see what that one tastes like. I think it's coming out in the variety packs. Yeah, you know, when I was at uh, beer camp, it was just about the time they had started uh, making torpedoes and using them the whole concept. And I remember all of us looking at them going, wow, that is really revolutionary. Dude, that's but- rad. <laughs> but not anymore, right? Because it's been going on for so long. Uh, and then the last one is there were a bunch of us who were bummed, bummed, put into a total downer mood when Sierra Nevada announced that they were no longer doing Summerfest. And instead, we're going to do a brand new beer called Summer Break, which was kind of a, a sessionable IPA. And of course, a bunch of us old folks and loggerheads were sitting there going, I'm fairly certain I heard a lot of that from Denning. Um, yeah, and th- I, I I had to be amused at the fact that they included this very specifically in their messaging in this whole press release. Uh, Summerfest re- return is not happening, and the reason that they said is Summer Break sold thirty one percent more beer at a faster rate than Summerfest did in its first year. Long. Yeah, unfortunately, that's true. So. I thought this was interesting to see all the stuff spelled out in Sierra Nevada's uh, release that they did. Firestone Walker did a very similar one where they were announcing a bunch of sort of brand line changes and sort of brand verticalizations. It's just interesting to see particularly how some of our more legacy breweries are having to respond to the changing market. Yeah, it is, man. And that uh, that's something that will come up uh, again in another one of these stories here. Uh the market is what determines what your brewery is going to be brewing. It's not uh, any kind of altruistic uh, ideals that, uh, oh, yes, people need this kind of beer. I'm going to do it because if you can't sell it, you won't be there to brew anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You have, a, I mean, ironically, I think you have a lot more flexibility when you're smaller to be able to kind of stick to a purity of statement, right? Uh, when you, when you well, get- yeah, I, I, maybe, maybe so. Well, I mean, you, you think about it. I mean, if you're a smaller brewery and you have a dedicated audience, I mean, if you, as long as your intention isn't to, you know, like grow and go gangbusters, 
I think you have a lot more freedom to be sort of stubborn about what you, what your values are. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think that uh, you hit the nail right on the head there. The, the key is to know and understand your clientele and give them what they want. And, uh, you know, maybe if you're a smaller brewery making uh, styles that other people don't make, you're going to be drawing in uh, a clientele who likes those and you can get away with it because you don't need as many people to do it. Yep, exactly. All right, and so from that little uh, world of Sierra Nevada and also Firestone Walker, we'll include links to both of their press releases so you can see what they're talking about. It's kind of fascinating to watch how the, that business is changing. And speaking of businesses changing, our good friends over at Texas Brewing, a.k.a. the folks behind uh, Come and Brew It Radio, which has kind of been on semi-hiatus for a little while. Uh, I feel your pain there. We were kind of on semi-hiatus as well for a little while. Um, they uh, have announced that they are closing their retail storefront. Um, and so I thought that was really interesting. They posted up about this. They're doing an inventory reduction sale. The storefront is going away. They are still going to actually, um, well, what's the best? They're still going to do online orders. Uh, and, you know, they'll be able to do like we'll call pickup and all that sort of fun stuff. Um, they're reducing their inventory to focus more on their what they call TBI Pro Brew Supply and also their homebrew wholesale uh, supply. So much like how More Beer made a pivot into supplying other homebrew shops, TBI is doing that as well. Um, but the thing I thought was really interesting was that they had been saying, hey, you know, homebrewing has been on a steady decline, at least their sales, for the last three years. Where, I mean, Denny, I think when you were talking to various homebrew shops last year, at least during the pandemic time, we saw uh, an upswing, right? Yeah, and uh, from what I've gathered from uh, the Brewers Association and the AHA, I think that that is generally true. Um, but I think that maybe for Texas Brewing that the commercial side just started getting so big that uh, it wasn't worth hassling with the homebrew side. Yeah, and, and they said that uh, uh, that the homebrew side only accounts for 5% of their sales. So it makes perfect sense. Uh, but yeah, I mean, and even if they're doing a lot of volume in homebrew stuff, uh, it's not going to come anywhere near approaching the amount of money that they make for selling a, a smaller volume of commercial stuff. Yeah. So we'll include a link to TBI's, uh, sale that's still going on, uh, and, you know, go, go give Stubby some love. Um, yeah, they're, and, they're great people. Yeah. And hopefully, uh, hopefully come and brew it, uh, comes back. They, they've been making noises that they're coming back because always good information on their show as well. So there you go. Texas brewing going out of the, the absolute retail side of home brewing, but just very interesting to see that change as well. All right. Yep. Uh, shall we talk to McKellar? Yeah, let's do at least briefly. Uh, everyone will remember that a few episodes back, we were talking about, the whole fallout from Brianne Allen's uh, sort of social media firestorm that she, I think, inadvertently started, but is a, has become a thing. Uh, there's Brave Noise Beer out there. It's all about exposing and hopefully correcting the the various forms of sexual harassment that a lot of brewers have faced in their careers. You know, so uh, again. If you, if you haven't looked, go look at either Rat Magan on Instagram or Embolden Act Advance on Instagram, 
and read some of these stories, you know, various breweries having very bad actors in them. Now, of course, there's a lot of like little things happening, which of course still shouldn't happen, but a couple of breweries got routinely called out for some very egregious cultural issues inside their companies. One of which was McKellar, right? The, the Danish gypsy brewer slash bar magnet. Now, uh, they, they had a number of allegations come out, both about toxic culture and about particularly bad behaviors on the behalf of their CEO and also, uh, Mike, uh, Mikel himself. Um, and it, it was just kind of funny to see not a lot of good response from it, right? A lot of companies came out when they got named and were like, Oh, poop. Yeah, you're right. This is bad. We'll make XYZ changes. Now, of course, we have to see how sincere some of that stuff is. McKellar never really did that. And so what's started to happen is we've had a number of stories. Kate Bernov, uh, with, uh, Good Beer Hunting, uh, released a brand new story. And one of the big focuses was McKellar has their annual beer festival, which of course got postponed last year for obvious reasons. And it's coming back. Um, but with all this added attention, people started to look at the various breweries that were there. And I think they had like 112 breweries signed up to be there and start going, Hey, you know, they've never, they've never taken any corrective action here. There's still a lot of unanswered questions. What's going on. And as of the time that we're recording this right now, of those 112 breweries, 52 have announced that they will no longer be attending the festival. Now keep in mind, when they first signed up for this festival, it was two years ago. So it was well before any of these stories started to come out. Uh, and since then, 52 have sort of dropped their attendance from, uh, from the, the fest. Now it'll just be interesting to see what this is going to develop because in some ways, McKellar has been doubling down on some of the, the problems that people have been talking about. Uh, and, you know, kind of blaming social media for being harassed, etc. Uh, but again, this goes back to the same point that we've always said. Treat people like people. Come on. It's really not <laughs> that hard. <laughs> no, it, and it's so obvious, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, nobody nobody should be harassed at work. Nobody should be denigrated at work. Nobody should be denigrated for things that are not in their control. People should be respected for their own humanity. It's really not that hard, people. And until then, gotta keep got to keep making sure that people are paying attention. So I will be curious to see what happens out of this because uh, we've seen some various actions like earlier, a bunch of the UK breweries that we're going to attend sort of said, oh, well, we're going to, but we want to hold a conference while we're there to try and bring everybody to the table while ignoring some of the work that's already been happening. Uh, and then they backed out of that plan. So just be interesting to see what the overall fallout is going to be by the time this episode appears. Uh, it will be three days before the festival actually happens. And we'll be curious to see what happens and if the festival itself actually does happen. Yeah, it will certainly will be. Okay, enough downer stuff. Let's go on. <laughs> well, the next one I'm not certain certain is so much of not a downer. Well, maybe it does. Or not a downer. Uh, AB, AB InBev, which you guys know is the, the big uh, biggest brewery chain out there, biggest brewery conglomerate, has started to explore the idea of selling off some of the German beer brands. So one of the big problems that ABI is facing is they've leveraged themselves with so much debt that the marketplace out there kind of looks at them and goes, hmm, not sure you're producing enough money for the amount of debt you're carrying. And so therefore it affects a bunch of financials. And in fact, uh, as we're talking right now, 
uh, ABI is actually down on the stock markets, uh, particularly over in Europe. But they're actually talking about in order to sort of get rid of some of their debt because they have acquired so much via like the acquisitions of SAB Miller and all that of selling off some of their German brands. And these are some German brands that I would suspect that you and I and everybody has had things like Francis Connor, uh, Spaten, uh, uh, who else? I think what uh, uh, Bex, a whole, a whole bunch of other things. They're really trying to uh, offload those. And what's interesting is that not only is it about debt reduction, but it looks like they're at least saying that part of it is to accelerate their ability to be able to refocus on the demand for newer drinks like seltzer. <laughs> oh, selling off Spaten to get money to make more seltzer, huh? Okay. Well, well and uh, the Cutwater Spirit uh, canned cocktails that they've got going, uh, canned wine – like ABI is really trying to uh, diversify out uh, just away from, I guess, really malt-based beverages. Um, so it is interesting to see. I'd be curious who would actually pick up those brands because it's not exactly like we have a, a lot of free money floating around or with these big big companies left. So just very curious to see what will happen with Francis Connor, Spaten, and Bex amongst others. Yeah, you know, if you've ever wanted to own a classic German brewery, this could be your chance. <laughs> Quick, let's get Jeff on the phone. He'll, he'll buy them. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> All right. Um, so from there, let's go to something that is actually really celebratory, shall we? You mean like celebration in cans? Like celebration in cans. That's right. Yay! Cans. So you know what? Every every year I wait for Sierra Nevada celebration to come out. Uh, with all the explosion of holiday beers out there with strange ingredients and spices and tires and you know, whatever. <laughs> I love celebration because it is just a straight ahead American IPA. People go, Well, what about it makes it a holiday beer? And my answer is always because that's the only time of year it comes out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm I'm looking forward to it. I love it in the bottles. I'm sure I'll love it in cans. Not to mention that uh, it'll protect the beer better and make it easier to take places too. Uh, and yeah, so celebration. I think it's been available in cans before in some variety packs, but it's never been mass canned and sold in cans. So be very curious. One, I'm obviously going to get my hands on some, but I'll also be very curious because I have friends who age celebration over the years. And I think they found like six years seems to be about the magical spot uh, before it turns down uh, in the bottle. So I'll be curious to see how well it does in cans, you know, particularly since there are people who have concerns about things like liners and cans and how well those will hold up over time. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see celebration in cans. And another one that's just come out in cans is yeah. Cezanne DuPont, one of Drew's favorites. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting a chance to try this. Uh, I had a big conversation with people online, and apparently there are technical reasons that canned beer can't be carbonated as highly as bottled beer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've, I'm curious to see how this compares. Uh, right. Our good friend Rodney Kibsey up in Portland has tried it, and he said that uh, it, it did seem to be lacking a bit of carbonation compared to the bottled version. But it didn't sound like he was complaining, did it? No, so... It's still not entirely clear to me where it's being canned, right? Because there have been some 
Belgian beers have been brought across the Atlantic in basically tanks and then uh, canned here in the U.S. before being distributed. So it's not clear to me where Saison DuPont is actually being canned. Uh, by the way, this is just the regular DuPont. Uh, if they start canning a Veclamon Vu, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. Um, <laughs> You're going to go try and find some, of course. Yeah. Um, I'm just worried more about my liver. Um, oh, yeah. So to your point about the technical problems with cans, so canning lines are finicky. They're, they're finicky, funky creatures, and they're very, very sensitive to the amount of carbonation. In fact, consistently one of my problems with some of the styles that I've been tasting with uh, commercial cans here in L.A. has been that there have been styles where I would really expect there to be a lot more fizz to them, like, say, Whitbeer, for instance. And they don't actually come out in the can with that same force. So, and part of the problem is, you think about it, when it, if you're trying to fill a bottle at home, you know, when you do your counter pressure fill or whatnot, you're being very careful about the amount of pressure, the gap that you have or difference that you have. Try and keep the flow nice and slow. Keep the flow from, you know, like sending a cascade of bubbles out everywhere. The problem with a higher carbonated beer is that they don't really have any sort of dial down mechanism I've seen on these or I should say on the majority of canning lines that are going to be used in smaller breweries. So you, you can't really pass a beer that's say 3.2, 3 3.5 uh, volumes of CO2 into a standard canning line and not just have it spray foam everywhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm wondering if some of the carbonation issues that, that I've seen reported, not just from Ronnie, but from a few others, if some of that isn't just, you know, hey, we didn't. Uh, they didn't do adjustments to the canning line to allow for the higher carbonation. Because again, one of the things that is very pleasant about a saison is when when you pop that bottle or open that tap and you get that giant rush of CO2 and that foam and that and all those aromatics being pushed out there. Now, having said that, yes, I'm still going to go get my hands on some cans of saison Dupont, and yes, I am probably going to enjoy them. And there's nothing you can do about <laughs> I'll that. I'll bet you will. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I, it's still going to be a delicious beer. Maybe missing a little bit of the, the spritz and, uh, and, and smack to the face that you get from that higher carbonation, but mm-hmm. it's still going to be delicious. Yeah. And, and just stop and think what it was like 15 years ago that Oscar Blues started canning, uh, craft beer. Yeah. Something I like think that? that's about right. Yeah. And, and before that, everybody would have been like, Cans are evil. Cans are bad. What are you doing? That's the sign of poor quality beer. And now we've come so far that that Saison DuPont and Celebration, two of my favorite beers in the world, are now in cans. <laughs> yeah, well, and I mean, and look at the number of breweries that are canning now. And in general, it has worked out really well for all of them, uh, except for the few that insist on putting fruit in the cans and they explode. Well, yeah, but they're doing that on purpose for another reason in the market. <laughs> because exploding beer cans are good publicity. And people apparently like the, the fruit puree. Yeah, right. Okay, well, they can have it. There you go. All right, let's get out of here, finish these up, and let's go to the library. All righty, we'll be right back after these messages. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their 8th generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain. 
creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Welcome back. We're here in the library, and we're going to be talking about some stuff that we've been reading. Uh, and the first one is probably what some people hope could be their perfect life. And uh, this is about Bronze Age salt miners who lived on cheese and beer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> a study that was posted, uh, or a study that was posted in Cell, or the uh, you know, big biology magazine or journal, I guess they. Uh, they went and apparently there was a whole study that they did on this UNESCO World Heritage site of an underground salt mine uh, in, in Hallstatt in Austria, and they went and they did an analysis of paleo feces. That's right. And I just want to say that's the best part of the whole article is that word. Yeah, paleo, paleo feces, aka old crap, specifically from humans. <laughs> Sounds like me. Yeah. No, you're an old fart. Um, oh, that's right. And so th- they actually did a study, and they looked at various pe- uh, various paleo feces samples, uh, all dating all the way back from the Bronze Age all the way up to the Baroque period, to do sort of analysis and look actually at the substances that could still be preserved in the paleo feces, particularly in the salt mine, uh, and try and figure out what the diet was of the population. And their study, reading from here, says our dietary study identified bran and glooms of different cereals as some of the most prevalent plant fragments. Uh, and it shows that their carbohydrate-rich diet was supplemented with proteins from broad beans and occasionally with fruit, nuts, or animal food products. Due to these traditional dietary habits, all ancient miners up to the Baroque period have gut biome structures akin to modern, non-westernized individuals who diets are whose diets are also mainly composed of unprocessed foods and fresh fruits and vegetables. And so they, they basically say there's been a shift in what's actually living in our guts due to recent modern changes in, uh, in terms of dietary and lifestyle. But I think what was really, really cool was they said in one of the iron age samples, we observed a high abundance of penicillium recordi and some Saccharomyces cerevisia. Yes, that's right. Blue cheese and beer. Gotta love it. 
You know, sometimes I feel like I live on cheese and beer. Well, look, if I could get if I could get my hands regularly on that rogue creamery brew cheese that you sent me once. Oh yeah, man. The, the, what was it? The smoked on pecan shells? Uh hazelnut shells. Hazelnut shells. Holy majoli. If I could get yeah. my hands on that on a regular basis, yes, you're right. I'd probably also die of a heart attack at a much younger age. Uh, but still, <laughs> I'd be a very happy man. You know, if I had a choice, beer and cheese would be the way that I would live, except it would probably be the way that I'd die. <laughs> well, and I also do think it's interesting to see that by looking at this paleo feces, which again is a great word, uh, that it is interesting to see how diverse the diet was even back then. And also particularly the kind of that truth that I think a lot of people are coming around to, which is, yeah, it's probably better to eat stuff that's closer to what it was naturally. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, really, really. And also, hey, look, even they ate grains. So stick it, paleo diet. (laughs) That's right. So uh, our next story is somebody else whining about IPA. (laughs) Well, yes, you you do have opinions about this, but... What it's a article that's actually a wine enthusiast magazine. And I don't See, know. I told you wine enthusiast. Well, except for what's very interesting to me is that over the past year, and I think some of this is due to John Hall, they've actually expanded their beer coverage. Um, and so kind of moving a little bit more pan beverage, shall we say, and having more and more articles about beer. But what's interesting in this one is it's an article from, uh, by Martin Johnson, and going on about, hey, you know, what's happening with, you know, Belgian beers and can they survive in this day and age of IPA? And, of course, going on about, you know, ooh, look how nuanced these are as opposed to IPAs. And giving, of course, some brief history and about, oh, yeah, no, beer is sanitary, la, 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 la. So what's interesting to me, and I know you have an objection to it because of the um, anti-IPA uh, outlook, is – this article also does really reflect what I kind of consider to be some of the, some of those same old stories and particularly that odd fetishism that we have for the idea that a lot of these European breweries and these European beers that we're drinking are ancient and antique. Um, right, right. But, but even though some of these monastery breweries may have very old lineages of brewing practices, they're usually very broadly interrupted so you'll see some uh, uh was it weltzenberger i think uh they claim to be the world's oldest brewery at like 1067 or something like that when they're founded but if you go and you look at their history there's like interruptions in there same thing you'll see around orval around a lot of these trappist monasteries where yeah you know sure we brewed back in the 1500s and then we stopped for 300 years um, but <laughs> but at the same time the other bit about it is people still clinging to that idea, particularly around the Trappist Tales, which they talk a lot about in this article, you know, having this sort of ancient cachet and most of the Trappist beer styles that we know of are post-World War One period beers. Yeah. I mean, Triple, for instance, came from the 1930s when uh, they were trying to find a way to compete with Pilsner. I mean, yeah, this is, to me, this is just another – uh, example of how uh, beer gets romanticized mm-hmm. and people people make up stories about it that have nothing to do with reality. Yep. But at the same time, I mean, even though this article I don't think is shedding any new light on what we know about Belgian beer, I do think it's interesting to see some of the old legends uh, still kind of going. But at the same time, I also think, I mean, look, I love Belgian beer, so 
I'll keep drinking it. Yeah, I mean, and I don't. Belgian beer is not going anywhere. Uh, IPA is not going anywhere. Uh, just you know, there's enough beers out there for everybody. So just get it together. Yes, go, go drink more beer. You'll be happier. <laughs> yeah, really. And drink more. Uh, drink more varieties of beer. And God, if you love an IPA, then keep drinking an IPA. Yeah, drink what you like. That's the what the whole thing is all about. So do it and be happy. Yep. And then the last thing that we're going to cover today is actually a three part, or at least three parts of, as of right now. I don't know if there are additional parts uh, coming. Uh, a series on the future of cask and keeping cask beer alive. It's from the craft beer channel on YouTube. Uh, these two uh, goofy Brits who are wandering around the country, uh, sponsored in part by uh, Fuller's and Asahi who owns Fuller's now to talk to both uh, Fuller's and what uh, hook Norton and uh, Abbeydale brewery about craft beer, uh, cask beer traditions and keeping those cask beer traditions alive Benefits, whatnot. Again, some romance attached to this, of course, because why not? A lot of absolutely wonderful shots of some very old and funky breweries. Uh, Hook, Hook Norton in particular is a very, uh, very old looking brewery. It still has that sort of Victorian three floor structure, you know, the, the grain going at the top and going down via gravity to the, to the cellar. Um, if you like the idea of exploring cask beer, and where cask beer can go, and why cask beer. This is a, a very nice, uh, mellow introduction and exploration of the topic. Like I said, right now, three episodes are out. They're all between 20 to 27 minutes or so. So not a heavy time investment. You can go through the, the series as it exists right now in a short evening. But again, just good to see people talking about cask beer. And for a long while here in the U.S., there was some push towards cask beer. Never quite caught on because, of course, cask beer is logistically challenging, shall we say. And it, more importantly, it's very hard to keep it served correctly. And so, but still, I like to see some of these old traditions surviving. And I do think there's actually some value to what cask can do for a beer. Yeah, if it's the right beer, for sure. But again, this is just another example of the diversity I was talking about. You know, um, cask beer is going to be around no matter what, because there are enough people who like it. <laughs> same thing with Belgian beer. Same thing with IPA. Same thing with lots of other styles. So go find what you like, drink it, and make sure that uh, it stays around for you. Well, and I still think one of the most relevatory experiences I ever had as a as a beer drinker was the first time I had cask IPA in the UK and realizing like I had a chance to sample it on draft on carbonated draft and I had a chance to sample it in cask and just to see how different the hop expression was right where the the carbonated version was kind of what I think a lot of us would assume and associate with IPA you know sort of that brisk bitterness with a uh, with a very kind of sharp hop driven you know sort of nose and then you got into the cask version of that exact same beer and it was still had that nice bitterness to it but everything else about the beer was softer and you actually got more floral character out of the hops right it was a it was a much gentler experience even though it was the same beer uh and 
two very different experiences that I think were well worth exploring. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, again, it's one of those styles that I don't drink a lot of. It's not one of my favorites. But every time I do, uh, I'm impressed by how tasty it really is. Absolutely. All right. And so that's some of the stuff we've been reading and watching. Go get yourself some blue cheese. Go get yourself some Belgian beer. And go and figure out how to make yourself a cask beer, too. Go for it. <laughs> that's right. Right. So uh, I get. I guess it's time to head over to the brewery now, huh? Yes, we get to see how much I liked your beer, or did I? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So after uh, talking about other people's beer, we're going to head over to the brewery and talk about our own. Stick around. We'll be right back. Yakima Chief Hops is a proud supporter of the global homebrewing community. We believe that homebrewers are at the true heart of craft beer. YCH is dedicated to supplying the brewing hobbyists, the homebrew side hustlers, and the late-night garage brewers with the same cutting-edge quality hop products as the brewers working on a 90-barrel tank. Yakima Chief is pleased to introduce the latest product in hop innovation right out of the R&D lab, Cryopop Original Blend. Combining their proprietary cryogenic hop processing technology with groundbreaking lab analysis, they've engineered a hop pellet packed with the most beer-soluble compounds to bring a true pop of tropical, stone fruit, and citrus aromas. Learn more at yakimachief.com. The Brew Deck Podcast features exclusive interviews with your favorite brewers and suppliers. Each episode highlights new trends and brewing tips from leaders in the industry to inspire your next brew. Listen to the Brew Deck Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. If you stop and you listen very carefully, you can hear the burbling. You can hear the hissing of CO2. And if you're very, very imaginative, you can even smell the wonderful aroma of yeast producing esters and pushing hops out of Denny's IPA number 230. That's right. <laughs> More than that. We're in the brewery. <laughs> and we've got a couple of things to talk about, but I think the first one that we're going to have to talk about and you're going to have to listen to, is Denny sent me a beer. And Denny, you want to, you want to set it up? Yeah, um, I made my uh, yearly batch of wee shroomy. Well, I guess it was like last year's batch, but it's been sitting there uh, trying to get ready to drink. Uh, I had a little carbonation problem. At first, it ended up being overcarbonated, and in trying to fix that, uh, I think it ended up a little undercarbonated, but... I can fix that, too. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was probably one of the best batches of the Wee Shroomy that I've ever made. I didn't uh, over-caramelize it like I have in the past, so I wanted to send some down to Drew to try. And here's what he thought about it. <laughs> so for people who don't remember, Denny's Wee Shroomy, as he's often talked about, is a chanterelle-infused Wee Heavy, so Scottish barley wine, effectively. 
Remember, uh, in the actual world of beer, if you look at the lore, Wee Heavy doesn't exactly exist. It's just kind of more of an Americanism. But in this particular case, we're talking about a big, strong, malty ale, a little bit of uh, Scottish or British uh, fruity esters from the yeast. And this, of course, is then infused with a whole bunch of chanterelles in a way that's wildly impractical, unless you can actually wildly gather them or have somebody who does. And the chanterelles typically give an apricot sort of flavor. I am drinking this from a 12-ounce PET bottle that Denny just carved up and sent down to me. One of those nice little brown ones. Decent fill. Let's see if we get a hiss. Nope. Just a tiny one. Mm. Smells already great. Okay, so low carbonation. Just enough to give us a little tight white head. Some fine bubbles racing up the side. Sort of a copper brown uh, beer. Little bit of, a little bit of haze in it, but, you know, then again, it's mushroom-infused beer, so what do you expect? Hmm. A lot of toffee. Toffee and caramel and fruit. Almost like a... Almost like somebody had taken some toffee, put a fruit slice on it, gave it just a, the barest little enrobing of chocolate to it. Along with maybe a little spice. What do we got in there? Hmm. And as it as it kind of opens up, we get more of that fruit. So getting kind of those stone fruit characteristics, along with just a little cherry ester. Interesting. So, again, we get sort of that big, rich toffee malt character. You know, a little bit, like a, a little a brittle type of idea. A little bit of that sort of sweet, uh, but also luscious kind of feel. A lot of, um, a lot of stone fruit. Really kind of more like a peach cobbler type of flavor. Yeah, you get peach cobbler, toffee, you get some cracker and some bread. And then, very nicely, even for a beer that has sort of a, a feel of a bigger residual mouthfeel, not actually really any kind of sickly sweetness, no no sticky of the lips, no, no you know, cloyingness. Uh, the one thing I would actually say that this beer misses is does need a little more carbonation, but Denny already kind of knew that was going to be a problem. Um but still, also very kind of sneaky in the alcohol, because I believe that this is, I think traditionally, I think this comes in at like 9, 9.5%, and uh, it doesn't feel that way. So overall, a little more carbonation, and this is a fantastic beer, and I actually think this is better than last year's iteration of the Wee Shroomy. That's Drew with your stealth beer review. Talk to you all later. You know, generally, I... I- pretty much agree with all of those comments. I thought it was interesting you picked up that little cherry note in it because mm-hmm. I've gotten that too. And 
I can only assume that that is something that's coming from the, the chanterelles interacting with the malt flavor. Uh, I, I didn't notice that in the beer before I added the chanterelles. Ah, okay. But, that was going to be my follow up question. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, I, I didn't, I didn't get that then. So, um, but I, you know, I, I have to say that, uh, I can't argue with anything you said. Can you imagine that? <laughs> hey, it, it has been known to happen. So, Re- yeah. Remind the the audience, how many pounds of chanterelles in this? Uh, in this particular batch, there were about six pounds of chanterelles in five gallons. All right. Uh, and so I'm trying to think at the. That, that's the, known as that's known as an embarrassment of riches. So I'm just trying to figure this out because again, you said six pounds, and given yeah. given what I know about how much mushrooms cost, like good mushrooms, and these are foraged mushrooms, so these are not farmed. Um, no. I'm, we're well over the $200 mark for, for just the mushroom edition, right? <laughs> well, yeah, not, not to mention that, uh, it uses a bag of, uh, Simpsons Golden Promise and, and that stuff is not cheap either. Um, I think that, uh, I paid 80 bucks for the bag. <laughs> so in other words, not a, not a, well, not a beard that you could do practically if you don't have a, a local forager for mushrooms or know how to do your mushroom foraging yourself. By the way, this is also the time every time we talk about the wee shroomy or any mushrooms involved, don't go and forage your own dang mushrooms unless you know what you're doing, please. That's right. That's right. I have uh, friends who do this and bring them to me. Uh, I, I do go hunting for chanterelles once in a while, but they're pretty hard to confuse with anything else. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, just remember the difference between a very tasty mushroom and a very dead liver mushroom is sometimes vanishingly thin. So Yeah, right. There's lots of mushrooms that taste good that'll kill you. Uh, and lots of mushrooms that taste terrible that won't. So yep. don't don't do it unless you know what you're getting into. Uh if you uh, happen to win the lottery, make yourself a batch. Yeah, or make friends with your local forager, you know, because they may have chanterelles that they can't actually use. And, of course, this is not the first and only mushroom beer that Denny has done, because I think you've also done, uh, what, maitake mushrooms? Uh, matsutakis, matsutakis. In, a, in a golden strong like uh, Duval, and then I've done uh, portabellas in, a, in a, a, an American brown also. Yep. So, again, I thought it was interesting what we got out of those chanterelles in the beer. And, uh, yeah, next time, get your carbonation right, buddy. Yeah, well, you know what, man? You, you've gotten on my case about that before. So I was really trying hard. And and maybe if you hadn't let it sit around for a week before you drank it, it might have been better, too. Unless that PET bottle was leaking around the, the edge. And since I had the beer on its side, I didn't see any, anything leaking. Yeah. No, it came to me without the yeah. carbonation. Yeah, no, I, no, I, I know it, uh, it was, it was highly overcarbonated and very foamy going in there. So I pushed, pulled a lot of pressure off of it and, uh, just, uh, let it run out of the bottle for a minute or so to try and get some of the foam out. But, uh, you know, that, that's why the bottle wasn't completely full either. Yeah. Well, but still a very delicious beer, even at about a touch under the carbonation that I would think would be ideal. So again, even if you don't have the chanterelles, I still think the base we have a slash Scottish barley wine recipe is a really good one to start with. Uh, so if nothing else, go and make yourself a good we heavy. Yeah. And I have to say that the, uh, the base beer recipe is not mine. That came from my friend, uh, Scott breaker, a beans. So, uh, you know, thanks Scott for the, the recipe and thank you to Randy Mosher for the idea to use the chanterelles in it. There you go. 
All right, and then some other things that we've been playing around in the brewery. These are actually on me. The the temperatures are are actually starting to drop here in Southern California, so I can finally get back into the brewery without feeling like, you know, I'm in the middle of you know a sweat box. And so I've I've been starting to set up for some things that I'm going to do. I've got that multi corn cream ale that needs to come online, uh, and I also threatened the other week to do a, a bochet. There is an article, or actually a presentation at HomebrewCon a couple of years back about making better bochets. Bochet is burned mead, right, where you sort of darken and caramelize the honey. The guys who gave that presentation walked through a couple of different ways to do it. Like the traditional one is pour your honey in a pot, keep stirring over heat, don't burn it, um, or you know, don't get scared, right, and watch your temperatures. It's a very daunting thing to do, uh, particularly because honey likes to foam. Um the other one that they had, that they had in there and I was fascinated to try is actually doing it with a pressure cooker like an instant pot. And so that's what I decided to do five pounds into my instant pot and running it at low pressure for 10, 15 and 25 minutes. And I have to admit I was still scared doing it in the pressure cooker, but it worked like a charm. And I don't know if there's anything that. Now, having done this, I don't know if there's any reason why I wouldn't do it in the pressure cooker and go back to the old-fashioned method of just doing it on the stove. So the pressure cooking didn't really offer you any advantages? No, no, no. I'm saying the, the pressure cooker offered me a lot of advantages because I could set okay, it and walk so, away so, so you wouldn't you wouldn't do it on the stove again? Yeah, I, I don't did, see any particular reason to do it on the stove. Did you add any water to thin it out, or was nope. it okay as it is? Nope. Just went straight in. And how long did you pressure cook it? Uh, I did three different runs because they recommended this in one of their recipes. Uh, right. 10, uh, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 25 minutes. And, of course, as you go, uh, it gets successively darker. Uh, the 25 minutes is very interesting, uh, uh, almost bitter in a way. Right. Um, I kind of like the 10 and 15 better. But I, uh, but I imagine using a small portion of the 25 will get a lot of character into the Boshai. Yeah, I was going to say, man, you can you can blend to get what you want out of them. Yep, absolutely. So th- that was a very interesting, if not slightly nerve wracking experience. Uh, <laughs> I will uh, I will post a link to the, the to the technique so you guys can see it. Uh, but that was a lot of fun. So I'm going to get that Boshai started here shortly now that I have the honey uh, prepared. Uh, the other thing that's out there again, last episode was about saisons. We just talked about Saison DuPont back in the pub. I'm a Saison head, and you guys know I like to test Saison yeast. Well, and now there's a new one on the market, a dried one uh, from Lalamond. Lalamond has had out there their Belle Saison for a number of years now, and Belle Saison's proved very popular. It's a reliable fermenter. It's one of those French Saison strains. You guys know my feelings on the French Saison strains. I reiterated my feelings on the Saison strains last week, um, but... The Lalaman Farmhouse promises to be something slightly different. It also promises to be a non-diastatic yeast. So you guys will remember when we've talked about Saccharomyces cerevisiae of our diastaticus in the past, it's yeast that can produce enzymes during the post-fermentation period that produce simple sugars from whatever remains in the beer, and then the yeast can kind of pick it up and re-ferment it, right? Not that much of a concern for us at the homebrew level. Big concern if you're at the professional brewery level. So the farmhouse strain that they have here from Lalaman now claims to be a non-diastatica strain. I'm going to, uh, we're going to have Brian up here before too long. So he can actually walk me through what's going on with this yeast, because I think this is fascinating, but it's a brand new toy and it's now available in 11 gram sachets for the homebrew size. 
Cool. Yep. I'm going to do a side by side with Bell Saison versus this farmhouse and see what we oh, get. Oh yeah. So that's that's what I got going. You got anything else, bud? No, that's that's about it. Uh, I'm going to be kegging the Ballantyneish IPA, and uh, initial taste tests are very positive. A uh, very different kind of IPA, and I'll, I'll report back on that uh, once it's in the keg and properly carbonated. Yeah, what was it that Paula had said? She said that it tasted roasty to her, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it like stout roasty, but there is some some of that to it. I think uh, with the the seventy crystal and uh, the Munich malt and stuff like that, I could I could see maybe getting a touch of that. There you go. All right. Well, look forward to hearing more experiences about the Valentines, and of course, you know, who knows what else we got going. Let us know what you got going. If you if you've recently run across an interesting idea that you want to try, or if you have questions about an interesting idea that you want to try, and whether or not it's a good idea or a bad idea, uh, we'll tell you, or at least Denny will tell you it's a bad idea. <laughs> you can, yeah. Uh, we have no qualms about expressing our opinions. Yeah. So you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew dot com. Don't forget. Always email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com or send us a text message at 626-765-1AL. So uh, I guess it's time now to wrap things up and move on, huh? Yep. Let's get the good people back to their business. Okay. Please take a listen to the messages from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. New seasons bring new brewing adventures with Y-East's Belgian Summer Private Collection, featuring 3463 Forbidden Fruit, 3942 Belgian Wheat, and 5151 Britannomyces Clasenae. These premium liquid yeast strains bring you the opportunity to enhance your skills and elevate your experimental side. The dynamic fruitiness, spicy phenolics, and complex esters balance well with the malts, hops, and specialty ingredients of Belgian styles. For an adventurous twist, add seasonal fruit and berries, or try Brett C with its tropical tartness in your next creative fermentation. These strains were available now through the end of September. Visit yeastlab.com for homebrewing recipes, tips, and more about which styles pair best with these strains. Time to wrap up and get out of here. There's no Q&A this week, so come on, guys. Send us some questions. Uh, give us something to speculate about. But in the meantime, Drew is going to kick in with a quick tip and something other. Go for it, buddy. All right, and our first quick tip for the week is actually not in the brewery. It's in the kitchen because, as you know, Denny and I both love to cook, too. And this is something that I used to do for years. I got away from it and started coming back to it. Salt your onions. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, if you're going to go make a sandwich, you're going to use some onions on that sandwich. I do. Or a hamburger or something like that where you get some nice onion. You don't want that big. You don't necessarily want that big, bright, 
in your face onion flavor that's going to overwhelm everything. You want kind of something slightly softer, but you still want that raw onion crunch, right? You still want some of that raw onion power. Uh, this was a technique I picked up years ago sometime back in the 90s from, of all places, New York Times food section. Uh, they had some sort of Mediterranean sandwich or salad, and they said, oh, here, take your onions, slice them thin, salt them, and then rub them in your hands until they kind of lose their structure, right? And they kind of become more soft and floppy. Great technique. The only problem is, of course, your hands then smell like onion. Oh, I have a solution for that. Oh, yeah. No, there, yeah, you can, you can do like the whole stainless steel trick and, and soap. Okay. That, that's one of the beauties of me having my stainless steel sink and countertop, man. It's like uh, onions and garlic present no issue for me anymore. Oh, yeah. But you don't have to do the hand rub onions part. What I have found is actually a really great technique for onions that you're going to put in a sandwich or a hamburger or something like that is slice them into nice thin rings or half moons, however you want to do it, and then just hit them with some kosher salt like four minutes ahead of when you're actually going to put them on your sandwich. And they will actually sort of take that salt in, they'll weep a little bit, they'll get a little softer, but also at the same time, they will get less raw, potent, fiery onion flavor. And I think it's a much cleaner technique than what I've seen other people suggest, which is slice your onions and throw them in a bowl of water. Oh, I just hold them under uh, running cold water in a strainer and do that. It works great. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't change the texture at all, but it does uh, take out a lot of the sulfur so that you don't get all the the heat and onioniness out of them. There you go. There's uh, there's been your uh, not quite Julia Child's quick tip for the week. <laughs> yeah, really. All right, and so something other than beer, because of course life cannot just be about beer. I got a couple things for you. Denny's got something for you, or I guess really it's sort of a, is it, well, we'll get to it. Uh, so the two things I have for you this week uh, is a YouTube cook, uh, Alvin Zhu, who has been best known for being on one of those big, like, I think it's tasty uh, food channels doing like these, Hey, I'm making a giant hamburger. I'm making a giant cheesecake. I'm doing giant this, that, or the other. He has his own standalone station where he, does these things like a hundred hour, a uh, hundred hour cheesecake or, or sorry, a hundred hour brownies or uh, a two day lasagna or a six hour double cheeseburger. Right. And I do not have that kind of patience. Well, but what's really cool. I mean, look, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the time is just resting time. Right. But what's actually really good about the station. He's only, he's only released like, I think 10 videos on it. They're all these sort of very soft, gentle videos showing you his techniques and what he's doing. You know, I kind of like this nice little light piano music behind it, very artistic shots. And it's just very, very calm. And you get to watch him make the, these really wonderful things. Some of these are absurd, you know, in terms of the time levels that, that are needed. But at the same time, it's just very warm and welcoming and a great thing to watch when, you know, life is otherwise being very frantic. So... We'll include a link to Alvin's YouTube station so you can actually go and watch it. But highly recommend those videos just for something nice and calm. That's still kind of just good food knowledge. Cool. I may actually have to check that out. There you go. And then the other one is I'm also a Star Wars nerd, right? Huge surprise. And if you know your history of Star Wars, you know that Star Wars itself is very, very heavily influenced uh, by Japanese cinema, um, you know, particularly what, The Hidden Fortress. And 
Disney Disney decided, well, hey, let's turn this around and sort of return the favor. And so they went and they contracted with, I think it's eight different anime houses in Japan. And now I'm a, I'm too old for when anime really kind of took hold here in the U.S. for young kids. But, you know, anime is a very popular form of cartooning now. And in Japan, at least, cartoons aren't just kids' stories. There's a lot of very adult stuff in these in these cartoons. So they gave eight different anime houses the chance to work in the Star Wars universe. And they produced nine different st- stories all centered around various things, you know, Jedi and lightsabers and all that sort of fun stuff. Nothing with the Skywalker clan or anything like that. And all very heavily influenced with, you know, Japanese culture and anime traditions and different styles of anime. And the first one that they have out there called the duel is pretty much straight up Yohimbo, you know, remade as star Wars. So (laughs) highly recommended all the videos in this series, all nine of them run somewhere between 10 to 25 minutes. So again, not a huge time investment, but it's just kind of nice to visit that universe again in a different way. And that's available on yeah. Disney plus. Yep. I may have to take a look at that, although I'm not a huge anime fan, but if they're short, it bears checking out. Yep. All right. And Denny, you were something other. Uh, yeah. Uh, mine comes from Disney. Also, they're running a six part docuseries called among the stars about a former astronaut. Who's trying to get it together to go back into space and go to the international space station. But it's a wonderful behind-the-scenes look at NASA and the training and everything these guys go through. It's about a guy named Chris Cassidy, who is an astronaut who wants to get back into space one last time to go to the space station. And more than his story, which is fascinating enough, it's a great behind-the-scenes look at NASA and uh, everything that happens there and what guys have to go through to actually make it into space and how dangerous it can be. So... uh, Check it out. Uh, I intend to, and let's talk. Yeah, one of the one of the most interesting and knowledgeable human beings I've ever known. Tried out for the space program multiple times, and that dude didn't make it. At least not so far. And if he didn't make it, good lord. So, all right. That's why you. That's why you and I are sitting here talking about beer instead of being astronauts, right? Oh, you betcha. Uh, <laughs> I, turns out I kind of like being a little earthbound. All right. Yeah. Right. Let's get out of here. All righty. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures, writings, etc., etc., by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out uh, on the Reddit homebrewing group and the Slack homebrew channel. You can find me uh, a lot of the times on Facebook or the AHA forum or lots of other places. Just go out there and look. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of us each individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And like Drew mentioned a little while ago, you can always send us a text, leave us a message uh, at 626-765-1-ALE. That's 626-765-1253. And don't forget, send us in some questions to podcast at experimentalbrew.com. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.